With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Another week is upon us. And uh, a big week of snooker. We've got the Hong Kong Masters uh, at the end of it. That's, of course, a very elite tournament. Just eight players. First event in Asia since uh, the pandemic struck. So the first in three years. Uh... We've had a lot of correspondence about the mixed doubles. People have been writing about the British Open, about Milton Keynes and all other issues as well. All will be dealt with next week, OK? So if you've written in, it's uh, simmering on a low flame and uh, we will deal with them next week. Uh, but in this edition of the Snooker Scene podcast, uh, I'm going to be uh, with Snooker Player Bingo. is back. Uh, it's bigger than ever. Um, it doesn't, doesn't really mean anything, that does it? It's about the same as ever. But I was delighted to be joined by Neil Folds, Alan McManus and Phil Yates. To, uh, and some of the names this week are very niche, it's got to be said. There's some real, you know, I don't, I don't use the word dark lightly. There's some, there's some names that have been dredged up um, and all the better for it. So that's this week. But as I say, next week, we'll deal with all issues arising from the other tournaments. Uh, we'll be looking back at the mixed doubles, the British Open and the Hong Kong Masters. And also have had more entries for uh, your favourite snooker player. Thanks for everyone who has written in, and we read, we've had two podcasts already going through them, but uh, there's some more to come, so plenty to discuss. The good news is there's a sort of good feeling again about the snooker circuit. We're back, tournaments are going to come thick and fast now, so after a sort of long wait, it finally feels like the season is underway, and what better way to celebrate the new season than dredging up names from the 80s? <laughs> and that's what we're going to do now, as we enjoy another edition of Snooker Player Bingo, and uh, I, I will say right from, from, from the off, because I won't be back at the end, uh, we're part of the Sports Social Network. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But now, the next voice you hear will be mine. Oh, and I should actually say, before we uh, before we play in the uh, the recording of Snooker Player Bingo, it was slightly different. To, uh, normally, I write down a list of ten players and the guys pick a number. This time, I asked each of them to pick three players. So that's the format. Uh, Neil, Alan and Phil each pick three names and we discuss them. So, Alan, you're first up. What's your first name? My first shout is going to be someone who I'm pretty sure Folds will know, Patsy Houlihan. Ah. Yeah, well, listen, he, he was um, almost the Ronnie O'Sullivan of his time. I mean, he, I know that sounds a massive statement, but certainly in, as far as his 
incredible talent he had for the game. You know, he was just somebody that was quick, fluent, made big breaks. He's a really beautiful player, very old school, as Alan pointed out. But honestly, to watch him play was a, completely a joy to watch in the same way you'd watch someone like Ronnie now. Um, but of course, the game is very different then, and I don't know if he was always made welcome in those ranks, in the professional ranks at the start, because as we know, it was a bit of a closed shot. But, and a really great guy as well from Deptford. Uh, in London, a real sort of rhyming slang, old school Londoner, but goodness, he really could play. He was very talented. I ended up playing him very late in, in his career, at the start of mine, in a squash court, which is, you can think of it now, in, um, uh, the, um, the event in Warrington. And, uh, it was an echoey squash court we played in. And, uh, he was one of these guys, when he would miss a ball, you would know he'd missed it because he would say, nope, that's not in, nope, he'd do it, take, <laughs> take, take you through it in the commentary. A great guy and honestly a superb player. The, the one regret I have um, before maybe Phil gets a chance with Patsy Hulahan, he was still playing when I turned pro, and it's a kind of regret. Neil mentions the Jimmy White thing. He kind of was that old school. I never got to play him, but I did watch him. You heard your the younger guys saying, you know, oh, yeah, there's old players on the tour. They're not this. They're not that. But he was. He played a, a really attractive way. I didn't get to play him. I wish I did, Phil. Yeah, it's a shame that he wasn't allowed to turn professional earlier than he did because he had some legal problems and consequently the authorities, as it were, then decided that, um, you know, he shouldn't be allowed in. Because you, you needed permission, basically, to turn pro. Exactly, yeah. And, and From your fellow pros. And he was, an English, <laughs> he was an English amateur champion and he turned pro very late. The first time I ever saw him, I didn't know who he was, I was at the 1973 World Championship with my father... And Alex Higgins was in the stands watching a match. And I went up to Alex to get his autograph. And he signed. And then this guy who was sitting next to him signed the, the programme as well. And I came back to my dad and said, I, I got two there. He said, yeah, the other guy was Patsy Hull and he's a really good player. You know, people knew. And when he turned professional, he was obviously past his sell-by date. Had he gone professional earlier, he would have been much better than a lot of the guys who were pros. Well, last thing I'll say about him, um, Mark King's father, Bill, who's mm-hmm. seen a lot of snooker, claims he's the greatest player ever to pick up a cue. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he's not just saying that for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. That's what he thinks. Well, two things that I'll pass you him. First, uh, he was in number one, the Bob Geldof film, briefly. Uh, it's available from all bad streaming <laughs> services. And um, the other is, there's actually a book being written about him. Uh, there's a journalist called Luke Williams who's, who listens to this podcast, and I believe it's out next year. So actually, if you want to find out about Patsy Hulan, it will all be in there. Uh, what's your first name, Neil? Okay, I'm not going back anywhere near as far. This person doesn't play anymore. Brian Morgan. Ah. Who I actually played at the Crucible, but as I understand it, He's a, he's, he's a pilot now, you know, he's yeah. in the same that Ali, I, I spoke to the chap who, um, uh, who actually taught him how to fly planes. So, uh, a terrific player. I mean, I'm sure, Alan, you may have played him. Absolutely. I, I probably, I'm guessing maybe twice. I, I think he beat me, certainly once, maybe, maybe both times. I can't quite remember, but I thought he was a really good player. Almost, he reminds me of another guy, actually, Mark Johnson Allen and Tony Jones was that, when they were good, they were really, really good. Phil obviously is, will know uh, match stats and, and but was it the Asian Open final? The Dave Harold was, uh, was that? No, he lost in the Asian Classic final. It was a terrible, terrible table, terrible conditions, and he lost very narrowly to Ronnie O'Sullivan, who I believe is the greatest bad table player there's ever been. He's the greatest good table player as well there's ever been. 
But yeah, he came very close to winning a, a ranking title. And you're absolutely right about Brian Morgan. When he was in the groove, he was exceptional. Again, I'll mention Alex Higgins. He beat Higgins in a World Championship qualifier 10-1. And Higgins actually stormed into the uh, tournament office and demanded that he had a drug test. <laughs> Not he had a drug <laughs> test. Brian Morgan had a drug test. Now, we all know there was no, absolutely no suspicion attached to him whatsoever. And, of course, one of Brian Morgan's big friends was one of the, uh, the, the Lazarus boys, and he was not best pleased. He wanted to, to go and find Higgins and uh, sort him out. He, he, one other thing I'd say about Brian Morgan, I didn't know him well, but what I... You know, you get these guys who are really mild-mannered and such nice guys. He all, it, there was no nasty streak in him. You know, sometimes players maybe need that kind of thing. He came across to me as just a super nice guy, real good player. He was a really good technician. I love this technique, I love this head position, through the ball, all that stuff. Um, it's a shame he got lost to the game, but uh, he's done well, as Foley said, with the, the airline pilot career. He, he was a blooming good player. And in the late 80s, early 90s, if you won the World Under-21 Championship, you were very, very good, and he did that. What, what is it about Tiptree that they all become pilots? What's that about? <laughs> is that just the second career for everybody there? Well, as I say, I, I, I spoke to the chap at the Championship League once who talked about a fly plane. I know he was flying... Um, um, channel hopping Logan Air I think for a while I don't know if they still exist as an airline yeah, but I know yeah. he, he's worked for those but um, just briefly Joe Lazarus I played him at the Crucible Joe Lazarus was literally in the front row in the seat next to me um, and he, you know he's a lovely guy but quite intimidating because he he uh, used to well, put it this way I think he was a boxer or, or something like that years ago and uh, you know it's terrifying actually uh, to play him with him because <laughs> he was not supporting me but he, he was a lovely guy and I ended up winning but he you know afterwards he was very very uh, sort of magnanimous, but he was a, a really loyal supporter. You just reminded me of that. Yeah, well, what um, Higgins said about Morgan that day was absolutely outrageous and totally incorrect, and I can understand Joe being very, mm. very annoyed. But I don't think Brian was as annoyed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Phil, your first name? Well, I turned 16 this year, so I thought my three names in this are all going to be veterans. So my first name is Graham Miles. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I played Graham at the very start of my career, my first ever professional match, which wasn't on the tour, it was in a, in a Pro-Am event, uh, I played Graham, and I played him again quite soon after, um, in a qualifier, I think somewhere down in, in um, Bristol, now obviously that was past his best really, because he was you know, a terrific player, but he did something I'll never forget in the second match I played him, and he, was, he looked at the scores, there was something like, let's just say, 64 behind, and, and he's got five reds left. And he took one look up at the scoreboard, and he and he and he didn't look back at it once. And he cleared up to win by a point. And he never ever. Most people will, will have that five looks at the scores. He took one initial look, and he never looked back. And he took a blue, uh, and I think he took a pink, whatever it was that, that he needed, and he won by a point. And I thought, well, that's class. He knew the score. He didn't need to keep gazing at the scores. But but a terrific player. Going back even further than that. Because a lot of guys now actually look at the scoreboard two, three, four times on one shot. Double checking all the time. You, you, I must be able to do it myself. You double, you used to double check all the time. Am I right? Am I it's right? Like searching for solace yeah. out there, isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. he won pop black, didn't he? When when it was kind of this was before the world championship became the big event was live on TV. So it was a massive thing for him in terms of getting his exhibition work and just becoming well known. And I think he was a late replacement for the pop black he won. He also got to the final of the 1974 World Championship, which Ray Reardon eventually won. 
And yes, a big proportion of the guy's <laughs> income then was exhibitions. And Graham was brilliant in exhibitions, both on the table and the way he could work a crowd. I watched him play an exhibition at Quarry Bank Labour Club many, many years ago, and the table was not good, I can tell you. I've done it quite a few times. That'll be uh, the next podcast, really bad tables you've yeah, seen. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and he made a century, and after every two or three shots, he turned around to the crowd and told a joke, and all of them were funny. And then he went back and made the... Uh, uh, he was really, really good value in exhibition. Well, just on the pot black thing, I was lucky. I played him either my first or second season. I'm pretty sure I only played him once. But it, it, I was still at that, I was about 19, 20, and he was of that pop black era as a kid growing up, I was at watching it. And so it was, for me, it was kind of playing like one of the stars, you know, and I was a little bit awestruck and starstruck and all that kind of, because I only seen these guys on TV and it was nice to actually just get a game against them. I can't remember the result, but I think I just got the better of him, but he was a blooming good player as well. And he was the precursor to Neil Robertson, you know, there's always an adventure getting there or there's lateness involved. Clive Everton told me, it was a great line, he said, the problem with Graham was, he always thought he was an hour and a half from anywhere, <laughs> and clearly <laughs> you're not, and certainly from Birmingham to Ipswich, he's not an hour and a half, and he played Jim Medicroft, I believe, down in Ipswich, it might not have been there, but he definitely played Medicroft in a match, and they both turned up late, and it was 2-2 at the interval, and the ball hadn't been potted. <laughs> well, I think, I think I've told this story before, but very late on, I mean, not long actually before he died, because he, he ran the snooker centre, didn't he? Mm. Um, and I was doing one of these where are they now pieces and I rang up he answered the phone and I said is that Graham he said no <laughs> I said well is he there and there was like just a silence for it seemed to stretch on forever it was like probably about 10 seconds he came back no he's not here I said well I mean you knew it was him I said Graham I said who it was I'm doing this piece he said he's not here I said well how can I get hold of him? And he gave me this number. He said, ring this. So I put the phone down, rang it. It was just, just a random number. It's a woman answer. <laughs> Nothing to do with him. So he was a bit of a, a bit of a character, maybe. <coughs> maybe it was just me, I don't know. Yeah. No, definitely. That, that Sluga Centre in Bearwood, uh, near Birmingham, was, was a cracking place. We used to have a lot of pro-ams there. And uh, he was always very, uh, you know, uh, sort of going around and seeing the guys. And, uh, yeah, he was just... I really, really liked Graham. And, and what he did in his career, I thought, was, was exceptional. Okay, uh, Alan, back with you. Yeah, I'm going to um, mention a guy that I, more so because I want to know something about him. Um, because it was my very first match as a professional. Tommy Murphy. I know nothing about him apart from I played him my first ever match. Well, so, yeah, um, well, the one thing I know about him, because he was the third man in the, in the rancorous uh, Northern Ireland team where, again, Alex Higgins threatened to have Dennis Taylor shot. He was the third man. That's right, yeah. <laughs> That's He's sort of a bit like a, being a, a boxing referee trying to keep Mike Tyson <laughs> and Larry Holmes apart, isn't it, that? Oh, yeah, it was terrible for Tommy. Oh, the other thing, of course, his other claim to fame was that he was on the receiving end when Willie Thorne made his 147 at the UK Championship. And back then, 147s were very, very rare. I remember one match he played against Chris Cookson. <laughs> of course you do. In, <laughs> in the qualifiers. Well, yeah. And he was well, well behind, and he ended up winning it, and that was towards the end of his career. But, it, yeah... I mean, Murphy, you know the old thing, two's companies, three's a crowd. Well, when Northern Ireland were playing, it was all about Taylor, all about Higgins, and he really was the forgotten man. Well, the, the story is, I mean, again, you don't know how true all these things are, but the story is when he came in, uh, Alex didn't know who he was, and he, he thought he was a waiter. Um, I know that's happened before. And he gave me, me a large vodka. I just thought he was a waiter, because um, he's wearing all the gear, and that was his teammate. So, not good for team morale, that is it? That's apparently 
Well, I, mean, I think you know what he was actually a good player when he first turned professional. Um, but if, I don't know. He just maybe didn't quite make the breaks. But um, I, I, you know, he, he certainly knew how to play. But that mustn't have been much fun playing in that team. Because a lot of um, people probably won't remember him. Obviously, he played in TV back in the day. But um, I, what I remembered about him, he looked like Roger de Corsi. <laughs> that was the kind of <laughs> I, I, at least I thought he did. Um, but he, he was a nice player. I remember him from the Guinness World Cup, all that, the, the, you know, obviously the Ireland team. Um, and uh, he was a good player. I just wanted to know basically a couple of stories. I knew nothing about him. Well, of course, that, that, I mean, that event, actually, the, the old World Team Cup, that would have been his sort of maybe his big chance to get on telly. A lot mm-hmm. of those guys who maybe wouldn't be at the top of the rankings, that was their big chance to sort of prove they actually were playing, I suppose. Mm. And just to say, Phil's outdone himself, because Chris Cookson doesn't even remember Chris Cookson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just going dis- to a disclaimer here. It might not have been Chris ah, Cookson. Listen, this is a low-profile <laughs> match, and it was many, many years ago but I will say whoever it was he played he came back from backtracking man. backtracking yeah. from 5-0 yeah. down to win 6-5 so that was a great comeback regardless of who he played if anyone's writing the, the Chris Cookson biography maybe they can yeah. maybe they can let us know uh, we, we're back with you now um, ok I'll go with um, again somebody from the past Jim Meadowcroft ah well, he featured in that, in that story a moment ago, didn't he, with uh, Graham yeah. Marsh? Well, of course, he probably, I mean, he was obviously a, a player. I suppose he was at his best before the sort of TV era came along, but he was best known, I guess, as a, as a commentator, wasn't he? He was on the end of the, mm. the 85 final with Ted Lowe. He, he was, you know, somebody that was really considered a, a really top player. I think he might have been one of these guys who, you put him on a practice table, he looked the best thing ever. But um, I'm not sure he was quite as good. I mean, I, I have said this before, but... To get to the Crucible, I ended up playing in the last match, and I was leading seven-two going into the evening session. And I remember thinking, you know, you're going to come back at me strongly tonight. I've not won this. I can't. I've got the Crucibles too. I'm, I'm going to go into the night session as if you know it's all up for grabs. It's even that's a big lead. And he turned up late the evening session, so then it was eight-two down. So hang on, this guy's not fancying it too much. But that's not fair on him because actually going back, he was considered a very good player, and you know he's part of the commentary team for the BBC. I don't know if you did ITV as well, but... Did uh, afterwards, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for a long time. I know, to my cost, he did ITV. We were at the assembly rooms in Derby, and it was when Snooker's civil war was raging, and we got to the quarter-final day, and they decided to have this big peace powwow, all the the different uh, people involved, and they said, look, to myself and Mark Johnston, it was, can you do the first three quarter-finals, because Jim... Uh, brokering peace. Yeah, yeah, it's brokering peace, and I think Rex Williams was also involved, so... Myself and Mark Johnson did three consecutive quarter finals. They came out with this big feast deal, and by the Monday they're at war again. It was completely <laughs> useless. Well, yeah. what, what I remember about Jim Medicroft, because I never played him, but he was he played in the pro ticket playoffs that I played in in the, in the late May of '90, and I can't, he might have played Chris Cookson, although I, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, the voice he was kind of the, one of the voices of, of snooker and stuff. And me and a couple of mates back home. Uh, Scott McFarlane, who you'll know, obviously, Phil. Um, we used to try and imitate his voice and all. You know, when you're a kid, you try to imitate. <laughs> Would you like to cop- try it now? Cop- yeah. <laughs> well, it went something like, "What oh, was it?" Um, well, I felt that I felt that Steve Davis. And that's not very good. Yeah. Good, <laughs> so that was not very good. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, it was one of the brilliant voices that I, you know, growing up. They will cut that bit out. Yeah, they will cut that. Out. Please do. I will say this: research was not at the top of his priority list. We were in Thailand once, and Willie Thorne, who was commentating with him, came into the room at the interval, and he went, "You'll never believe what he did at the start of the match." 
said, what's that, Willie? He said, he put his hand over the microphone and said, is this a semi-final? He didn't even know what the round was. <laughs> and let's be fair, to, to be fair to Willie, he wasn't the most researched either. Was oh, no, no. <laughs> so so to shock Willie in that regard. Yeah. I, w- I wonder, I mean, we can't ask them now, but I wonder what those guys felt about, he was an example of someone who was at his best before the game kind of exploded and the money came in. I mean, I'm sure he was pleased to see Snooker grow as big as it did and he benefited as a commentator but maybe missed out on is there that holiday camp video that, have you mm. seen that the one at Butlins or Pontins mm. or something that it, yeah because that was their sort of stock in trade wasn't it they sort of slog around those places but the sort of tournament circuit wasn't really there I guess he sort of missed out on the, the best years of that really. I think that was a, that was a great uh, thing to be involved in going around those holiday camps it's paid well didn't it mm. I mean, Ray Reardon was heavily involved in that and uh, um, aside from all the points we're talking about just quickly I remember John Virgo telling me the story that he replaced Ray Reardon uh, for a week at all the, the, the holiday camps and he turned up in one of the chalets that would have been assigned to him and he got into the bed and there was a door in the bed a big wooden door in the bed <laughs> a crack segment door it was, it was a door and um, he what the hell is going on okay, here? Well, apparently, apparently, uh, Ray's back was bad, and he, he actually requested a, a door to sleep on a door. But John had didn't request it, and John had to sleep with. with I think obviously remove it, but he was very shocked by it. Well, I've, I've been here. I've been in Milton Keynes. I've struggled to get a second towel. But anyway, that's that's that's, that's <laughs> and, and, my private uh, help. It's not the most unusual <laughs> thing that's going on in a point and chalet. Well, <laughs> you, well you could accuse something you like that of being unhinged, couldn't you? Really? Yeah, yeah very good. <laughs> I'll, I'll, well. I'll also cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, we're not here to enjoy ourselves so anyway Phil <laughs> Phil, uh, your next name ok my next name is someone we all know really well we all talk about him a tremendous amount and we miss him a lot Willie Thorne yeah well I mean we, we, I still can't quite believe he's gone actually um, now we know that the last couple of years of his life things were very complicated for him without going into it and um, but we, we, we want to remember the, the times before that don't we I think um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Willie actually because you know he, he's one of the biggest personalities the game has ever had. Uh, completely tongue in cheek, most things he said. You know, the, the line what you were saying, who was the best player in the room before I walked in? He would say that, and he would defend nobody in saying it because no, everyone knew that he didn't really mean it because he, he was he was uh, humorous, wasn't he? Um, I've known him since I was a kid. My first ever match I played as a 12, 13 year old at Pondins, he was watching. Um, strangely, you know, he's a, he was a, a big snooker man and, uh, you know, in the early days, just the most incredible snooker player. But his personality is almost what you remember more, isn't it? Yeah, he was a great player. Um, he had one obvious fatal flaw, the gambling, and the, the stress he must have had from all of his debts. Uh, you can't say it contributed to his, uh, his demise, but you have to think it could well be a factor. And towards the end, it must have been awful for him. Um, to be in the commentary box with Willie Thorne was a real pleasure. He could pick the shots tremendously well. And the other thing I really liked about him, he wasn't frightened to offer an opinion. Now, whether it was right or it was incorrect, that's, you know, immaterial in many respects. He didn't sit on the fence. He was always great fun as well. I recall we were in the, the commentary box when Nigel Bond beat uh, John Higgins in the final of the British Open, uh, very dramatic match. Bond needed a snooker in the final frame, won it on the black. And Willie, he was a really good guy with one bad trait. And he got very emotional when Bond won that. He was crying in the commentary box. And I thought, well, what a good fella. Because he was really empathetic. When he saw Nigel win that first ranking title, he was genuinely happy. 
yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to play him a bunch of times. I played him actually my first match at the Crucible, which, looking back, I'm, I'm glad it was Willie Thorne I played against. He had a kind of old style, old school charm style about him, didn't he? He had a little diamond in one half mm-hmm. of his bow tie. He wore these socks. I remember playing him at the Crucible. You know, you, you look at the other guy. You certainly did then. Just dress sense and all that. Because you're growing up as a kid. You want to emulate the, the, the guys who do it properly. And he certainly did. Had these socks. They were all, they were silk. And I was like, God, I, I'm playing a guy who's wearing silk socks. You know, it was quite intimidating. And he had this shirt was all like absolutely perfect. And the waistcoat made to measure and... Just a, a kind of old style, but you know, we'd always wear the big trench coat and all that. Went in, as as Folgy said, when he came in the room, he always had a line, and it sort of set the room at ease, all that sort of stuff. Brilliant commentator as well, as you say, Phil wasn't afraid to voice an opinion, and, and he sadly missed. Yeah, I, I think as a commentator, he was probably the first to, you know, actually kind of tell it how it is, or as as he saw it, and not be afraid to do that. Um, and I think because he sort of worked, people forget he worked for the BBC. <coughs> in the kind of early 80s and they kind of got rid of him because he maybe was a little bit too opinionated but then his style and we see it in all sport now you're expected if you're in that position where you're being paid you're expected to say what you think and I think he was probably arguably the first person to do that in snooker what, one other thing I'd say about me, you guys will remember when we used to go to Thailand for say last 32 or sometimes even last 16 or, or China the title sponsors would have a, an event wouldn't they a dinner a th- and he was the perfect guy to have yeah. there you know, he would mingle with them, he would talk to them, sort of, you know, just be, basically be nice to them and be nice to everyone. He made it feel like, and he made you feel like an important snooker player because of the way that he, you know, he spoke to the, mm. the, the sponsors, but you don't get that anymore. That's something that I think in the game that we don't have that I think we should have, well, he, is yeah, give the sponsors something. Definitely, and he represented the sport in a wider sense. People knew him. I mean, he went on Strictly Come Dancing. He, he would do, like, these charity auctions after dinner speeches, so... Long after he stopped playing, he was still sort of representing snooker. He was, a, I mean, he was a bigger name even in retirement than a lot of the, the sort of top players he was commentating on, actually, in terms of recognition. I think he was as recognisable as anybody mm. when you think about it. You know, if you put David Beckham in a room, <coughs> people would recognise him. But you'd have to look at him first with Willie. He, he kind of was immediately recognisable outside of snooker. Everyone knew him. And the point you made, Phil, about um, somebody we spoke about previously not being the most researched. I mean. Going into a commentary box with Willie Thorne, I'm not sure you ever commentated with him, Alan. No, I didn't. Well, it was an experience like no other, because mm-hmm. first thing he would do, <laughs> he would actually ask them to turn another channel on one of his TVs, and it would be Home Under the Hammer was his favourite if it was at the Crucible. So the snooker was only on one of the small screens. I mean, it was almost like it was getting in the way. Like, so that you'd have to sort of like uh, sort of crane your neck to see... The, 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 what was going out on the snooker table because all the other screens had different programs on and uh, he, he would absolutely shamelessly tell whoever it was in, now, I would have been thinking well I'm, I'm going to lose my job here because if I ask for something else to be on the TV yeah horse racing on that one please and hand over the hammer on that one uh, and can you give us the affair so he wanted to hear all the things that were being said and then you know <coughs> it, it, he would have the snooker on but and then he would never he would always have his phone on in there um, quiet, silent, but then the amount of names that would come up on his phone during a, a run of the mill commentary, it would be, oh, Gary Lineker, you'd see that name come up on his phone, then it'd be David Dickinson, who obviously he's a big fan of, I think Dun- Duncan Norville, oh yes, uh, Duncan, uh, a professional golfer, it was the whole range of people would ring him on a daily basis just to have a chat with him, you know, an incredible list of names. He knew everybody, and everyone knew him and loved him. 
that off-air monitor, I'll give you two examples. 1995 Ryder Cup. The final night at Oak Hill coincided with the final of the Regal Masters in Scotland. So we're commentating for Sky, and I'm really concentrating. Obviously, it's the final. And uh, Willie has got the golf on. No sound. Um, and when... Um, when uh, they, Philip Walton yeah Phil, Phil Walton yeah when he coated that put up and we knew we were going to win out there he actually cheered Willie in the commentary box <laughs> you could hear the cheer on my microphone so that was one thing the other thing was one of our tournaments coincided with the very first night of the National Lottery and uh, he got that big coat anyway Drawmaster Willen came on you know at eight, 8 o'clock or whatever it was so I'm there talking about a safety exchange he's talking about the, he's, he's looking at oh, and his eyes are wide you know looking for the lottery numbers across the screen they came he goes into this coat he pulls out this wadge of lottery tickets like you've never seen before or since and then for the next frame he only ever spoke he was just not marking off these cards you know and at the end he went yes I've won 280 quid I went oh well, well done Willie I said how many tickets did you buy you went 500 <laughs> <laughs> just one quick one as well I had um, you mentioned Regal Masters that tournament was on late September whenever it was mid 90s and I actually went to a Celtic game with Willie Thorne. It was a few, I think John Williams was there, the referee. Anyway, we're walking out the stadium. Of course, it was dark by this time. So it was half past nine, ten o'clock. And it, it was thousands of people walking out. Willie's got the big coat on. There was a little Glasgow um, guy behind us. And I heard them say, hey, look at that big baldy guy there. It looks like Willie Thorne. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it was him. And he turned around and he said, oh, you cheeky little bugger. You know, oh, brilliant. John, I think there's a lot of things we could speak about. We could probably do a whole yeah. podcast on Willie Thorne. Um, you're going to say something. I will say one thing. For a while, he had um, his own personal valet, didn't he? A fellow called Norman. I think, remember <laughs> right. this chap. Lovely guy. The nicest man. He'd come from a golfing background. But Willie was giving him, like, I don't know, a hundred quid a week just to be there all the time and he was like a sounding board he would he would he would whatever Willie said he would agree with or he would say can you get that for me Norman and Norman would always wear um, a green jacket on the four days of the Masters he was old school you know immaculately dressed man but he would be there to pick up Willie's trousers put, put his shirt on and help him with his waistcoat and all these things and I went to um, to practice with Willie Thorne at, at his club in Leicester once and um, uh, we were just not playing seriously at all. We just we weren't playing for anything. We just having a game. And but Norman, obviously, that's refereeing. So Norman, so Willie Thorne, first frame he gets pots of red, and I think he's, if he pot, if he pots this black, he's tied up. So when he pots the black, Norman puts the black on the spot and just moves all the reds out of the way. Yeah. I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, only practice, aren't we? So, so I thought, hang on a minute. And this guy really was there for everything. And I played Willie at the Goose and He was sitting in the little photographer's box at the the black end of the table was Norman waving his arms around every time anything bad happened to Willie Thorne he was completely in his corner he was a lovely guy but I mean how many snooker players had their own personal ballot just, just finally as well Togget and you guys will know this um, he, he always maintained he didn't drink Willie Thorne mm. alcohol but when he had a nice bowl of pasta or a meal he had a glass of wine because mm. that was the old school gentlemanly thing the way to eat your dinner wasn't it so I remember well, that. Lots of nice men. He used to drink Battard Montrachet, which is about 1,200 quid a bottle now, yeah, you know. Yeah, I looked yeah, it up no. the other day. I wasn't thinking about getting a bottle until I saw the price. <laughs> Battard Montrachet, please, bottle the ass for us, boys. It's literally, That's it's, right. it's a four figures a bottle of that. So he did drink, but he'd only drink the best. Yeah. I know we're limited for time, but this is such a good story, I've got to tell you. So, Regal Masters again. Final is over. Late at night, he goes down the hill from the Motherwell Civic Centre, decides to fill up at that petrol station mm-hmm. down there mm-hmm. on the, on the right hand side. So he's filling up with petrol, and there's two guys, young blokes, having a fight. 
So Willie, being the nice guy he is, tries to separate them. Come on, lads, come on, lads, you know, cool it down, cool it down. They turned on him <laughs> and kicked his car and caused about 500 quid's worth of damage. Well, it was motherwood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, like Neil said, I think we could do all episode of Willie, but uh, let's, let's move on. So we're back with you, Alan, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go for a guy who actually never turned professional, but I'm pretty sure you guys will know him. Uh, he was a massive influence on, on me as a player growing up. Um, I, I'm pretty sure he's the only other guy, apart from myself, to play in the final of the English Amateur Championship was Jim McNellan, or Jimmy McNellan, as we knew him, because he, as I say, he was a huge influence. I don't know how well you would have... I, did, I didn't know him well. He's a successful film, isn't he? Yeah, I didn't know him well, but I remember around that time, obviously you've got Terry Griffiths uh, doing well in the English Amateur Championship, Joe Swale from Northern Ireland, yourself and, and, and other Scottish players doing well. And there was a big debate. Well, hold on a minute, you know, you can have the Scottish Amateur Championship, Northern Ireland Amateur mm-hmm. Championship, Welsh Amateur Championship. We can't play in those, i.e. English people. Why can they play in the English? Now, I always thought the English was such a, a big tournament. Anyone should be allowed to play in it, so I never had any problem with that. But he was one of those who sparked that debate. Well, he was, he was a guy, sometimes myself and Folsey, very rarely we see in commentary the, the the three hole or the six pocket or the one bag he was the guy who taught me to play golf on yeah. the, the, the snooker table and he was brilliant at it great tactician but he could play as well. one of those guys that was a lot better than people thought he was mm. you know you get those mm. guys I'm sure you know tons of them and uh, as I say, he's, he's still alive you know he's, I, I think he still goes in the club that he always did he started playing in the Q club at Charing Cross in Glasgow and when it opened and I, th- it was, I think it was 82 and he still plays in there um, not in the best of health but I, I you know hopefully if he's listening a lot of the Scottish snooker guys will be listening to this and uh, they, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about he's a class guy Jim yeah I mean he came from an era of, of Scottish players pre-yourself pre Stephen, obviously pre-John Higgins and, and Stephen all these guys there were some, some good players around then who did turn professional were they you know like mm. lots of you know Eddie McLaughlin and, and Matt Gibson and, and um Jim Donnelly, all these guys, but he, he decided not to turn professional. But I know he was very, I didn't know a lot about him myself. I know he was highly thought of as a player and a person, wasn't he? Well, he had a trade. I, I, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but you know, so as, as Dave kind of mentioned earlier, you had to get your income as a snooker guy in other ways, exhibition and all that. But Jimmy had a job. So I think he just enjoyed travelling around more Scotland. I don't think he was the sort of guy that, um, I, who was the older Welsh player who didn't travel? I can't remember what, um, Anyway, you, name, don't mean, name, you don't mean Terry Parsons, do you? It might have been, yeah, it might have been. He was won the World Amateur Championship. I don't think he ever turned professional. Yeah. Um, I don't believe he did. He was a superb player. Mm-hmm. Really superb player, Terry Parsons. But I don't, if he, he was a postman by trade, but, um, you know, I don't know if he ever did turn professional. If he did, it was very late in the piece, too late for him. But, but as I say, Jimmy, um got to the final of the English Amateur at a time. I think it was 84, I'm guessing. Um, he, he played, you'll correct me, Phil, he either played Terry Whitthread or Barry West. In the fight. I think he lost 13 4 anyway, but he's a legend of Scottish snooker and I wanted to give him a mention. You know. It's interesting you say about people having jobs. Alan Barnett from Wolverhampton, who won the English Amateur Championship, Clive Everton has always told me this great story. It was over two days, the final, and he, was, um, he got a newsagent shop um, and basically came down to London, played the first day, went back to Wolverhampton, opened up his shop, sold all the papers at the crack of dawn the following morning, went back to London. And won the English Amateur Championship. Mm. Totally different here. Proper amateur. Mm. Proper amateur. We're going we're to try and get two more in. So, Neil, you're next. Okay. I'm not sure Adam will know too much about this chap. And, um, but I'm going to mention somebody called Bernard Bennett, who was uh, oh. a professional player. Uh, and to be honest, 
he had a, the reputation of being the worst player on the tour for a while. A lovely guy who had a club down in Southampton, um, Phil, you, you'll remember him. The Castle. The Castle Club, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he didn't um, exactly excel on the table, did he? But yeah. he was one of those guys who did a, a lot for snooker through the club and also, you know, because he loved it so much. He genuinely loved the game, even though he wasn't particularly good at playing it. No, I mean, I think, the story has it that he was a builder and he had something to do with, he, he built something that, well, to, well, Steve office or he certainly had some involvement. He, he did them a favour and he was allowed in as a professional. In a time when you couldn't become a professional very easily, he was allowed in. And I think one of the reasons was that he wasn't a particularly good player, you know, and he, he wouldn't take a frame off of hard anybody. I don't suppose you remember him, Alan, do you? No, I, you heard I, about I remember him? the name. I, yeah. I might have still been on the tour when I turned pro, but I, I certainly know the name, but I couldn't place him. No. Do you know, I, 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 I remember playing <coughs> at a match once, um, and it goes back to Willie Thorne, but Bernard Bennett mentioned in the story, because I was very pleased that in the signing frame of a, of a match, um, I made a sizable break, and afterwards I was pleased, and Terry Griffith said to me, you know, Willie Thorne was sitting there, and he said, Bernard Bennett would have made hundreds from where the balls were, he said, <laughs> never mind anything else, which was not exactly, um, <laughs> and I was pleased with the break, but he was saying you couldn't fail, yeah, I mean, the only match I ever remember him winning was against someone you will know, Bert DeMarco, Bernard yeah. Bennett beat him, and it was one of the only wins he ever had yeah, yeah. on the tour, um, and I watched the match, it was extraordinary business, because Bernard wouldn't make any breaks, I mean, I doubt if he, he ever made a Hardly would have made a century break in, in practice, never mind in matches. Um, and the story goes that um, John Spencer, uh, he, he phoned up Bert DiMarco because he saw the result in the Daily Mail and said, you want to complain? There's a misprint in the Daily Mail. He says, <laughs> he says it says that you lost to Bernard. Clearly that can't be true. <laughs> he knew he'd lost. <laughs> OK, we're going to, with apologies to Bernard Bennett, we're going to move on because we've got not much time. So Phil, you, you conclude proceedings. Yeah, well, another player from yesteryear who was a tremendous player and a multiple world champion, John Pullman. Ah. But you know, it's odd because I was going to, he was, I was thinking about saying it myself. I mean, the, the Pullman stories are great, but again, I, I saw him play, but not that much. He played my dad in the, the last 32 of the, the Pontins Open. We all know what that meant. You know, my dad was actually a qualifier and John Pullman was one of the invited professionals and it was in the, not in the ballroom, it was, there was another bar next door with two tables in, in the end, and there was only two matches upstairs. Anyway, he played there. My dad was getting a sizable start, and Pullman would struggle to beat him, and lo and behold, my dad won the match. But all the way through the match, Pullman's language was absolutely appalling. He's a lovely guy, and because I was used to hearing him commentate, the language was just unbelievable. He was moaning and groaning about every little thing that happened. Didn't want to be there. I think nursing a hangover, I'm sure, because, I mean, he'd been propping up the um, the bar in the Grand Hotel the whole week. Um, so he, when he came to play, he, you know, he was not in the best of moods. However, he, he was the most amazing bloke. Well, at the Crucible, I was in the crowd once, and he had a straight yellow it was one of those you know a queuing shot and he knocked it in and followed the white in it <laughs> yeah it, it, it went from yellow to blue yeah. you know yeah it, it, under the current rules someone like him or Eddie Charlton would be bankrupt because the fines they would have to pay for swearing would be yeah. off the off the charts I remember uh, John Pullman largely through the Irish Masters the old Benson Hedges Irish which he went over and commentated on and we stayed at the Finstown Country House Hotel at the time. It's still there, actually, but the golf course has gone anyway. But he, so he was the guy 
he was like the old brigadier going into the bar at night and there was a there was a little bar I'm guessing about well, probably the length of a snooker table and at the end of it was this stool and it was his stool oh no it was his stool it wasn't anyone else so he's gone in late at night after the match and he's gone in like you know Mr Smith from down the road would be sitting enjoying his his G&T young man that's my stool oh, whatever his voice was and it was and, and he wasn't kidding it was like out that's my stool you know so that and if he'd have said that to anyone, they probably would have just said, oh, yeah, so sorry, Mr. Pullman. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, and can I buy you a drink as well? And another of the brilliant voices that, and I'm not going to try and imitate it, but we, we did, on, we did try. We I can't, I can't <laughs> even think of what it was, but he just had a brilliant voice. Very rich, yeah, very rich voice. Yeah. Nice to listen to, and that's quite important, you know, if you're going to, because Suga's on for so long, you know, it's sort of, you do, I mean, I was a kid, but so I wouldn't be, have the brandy out, but you can imagine it's that sort of, he's got the fire on, you've yeah. got the brandy, there's John Pullman, he'd be with you if he wasn't commentating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my first ever, ever time I commentated, long before I finished playing, was um, we played in, in uh, Southend in the Matram Championship. Pullman was there as the commentator for every session, and sometimes a player would be a, the guest commentator. I can't remember who was, well, I commentated on, but I mean I've gone there again. Not the one, for once, I was researched in those days, maybe more than now. But anyway, you know um, all the stuff, and Pullman's in there. He said, "Now this is the most important man. He looked behind him. He said, this is the runner. You keep on the right side of the runner because." Uh, you, you'll see why. So anyway, he said, uh, uh, forget the fellow's name, just say he was called Dave. So, uh, Dave, uh, as you know, every 15 minutes, top of the old glass there, you know, and, uh, <laughs> um, large, large whiskey. Um, and the bloke said, do you want water with it? Water? <laughs> All I want is more whiskey in there, you know. Basically, he would get more, more and more drunk. This and is the, where you got it from. I didn't realise this is where it started for you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, over the course of the evening, it was, it, the commentary was all about having a drink and he'd be drinking all the way through the evening. He still made sense. He was brilliant. He still made sense all the way through. But the commentary stint, by the, if it was a long match, by the end of it, he would have drunk 10 or 12 large whiskies. I don't want to lead you into one, Folsey, but the story from the, the you know, the one I'm going to, the, 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 the masters. Well, that, this is a story that uh, I, I've been told that, to, <laughs> yeah, by a few people that um, he, was, he was sitting in the, um, the the player's room at the masters, which was the old conference centre. I mean, it, most people listening wouldn't have had, you know, been down there, but you, you come into the conference centre, turn right down some stairs and there was a practice room and a small player's room and they used to look after you absolutely royally the sponsors the tobacco sponsors uh, B&H uh, at the time but again Pullman was in there with it in his own seat the one that Alan said that no one would dare go in it and for some reason the de- next to him the phone rang and it was just a phone that was just on the table next door and it could have been for anybody he's uh, better pick that up uh, hello there John Pullman here ah oh, yes Mr Pullman we, we actually you're, we're from the um, the Inland Revenue um, we, we, we want to know, um, you seem, don't seem to be up to date with your tax returns. And he said, I'm sorry, I know nothing of it. And put the phone down, and apparently never heard from them again. <laughs> How they ever got to, to phone on that number? Yeah. But it wasn't, it was just literally yeah. the number on the phone next to him. Don't so, try that at home, yeah. because it won't work, can it? You're right, when he had a drink, he was remarkable how he kept his sense, he was perfectly yeah. cogent, and he never slurred. You would never guess. The only tell to use a poker term, if he had a, a lot, was if he 
repeated an anecdote straight after telling it in the first place. <laughs> and that's when, a, a yeah. couple of occasions, I think he was actually sort of, you know, removed from the commentary box because, you know, it was a bit, sort of an involved anecdote and then two minutes later, exactly the same one. But he was a great, great commentator. And he, he came out with one of the greatest ever lines in commentary at the Yamaha when the highest break prize was an organ and someone had got uh, brown, blue, pink and black to tie the high break. And uh, his co-commentator this says, yeah, well, he's got the last four balls to uh, to tie the high break prize. And the, the prize is uh, an organ. And John Pullman said, yeah, but what do you do with half an organ? <laughs> <laughs> On that bombshell, we're going to conclude. Thank you, everybody. Um, and, uh, well, join us next week for our Chris Cookson special. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.